Well, hello, White Sox fans. Uh, we are lucky enough to welcome uh, somebody who has been gracious enough to uh, grace us with his presence, uh, Mr. Herb Lawrence. How you doing, Herb? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me in. Thank you for having me, Danny. It's awesome to be on and talking White Sox baseball. Yeah, about that. Um, we have the former executive producer at 670, now is community leader with CHGO Chicago for the White Sox. And uh, previously before that, uh, Locked on Sox as well. Got a, a busy life there. So yeah, what hasn't Herb Lawrence done? Yeah. Um, like, uh, you, you've been out there doing everything. Um, I'll, I'll I'm say old. <laughs> yeah, we've all been doing uh, doing stuff for a long time at this point. Uh, I will point out that the uh, the most important of your qualifications is uh, Wheaton North Falcon. Um, I will stand up for that. Um, so uh, let's just I, I kind of wanted to start off because, um, you know, I mean, everybody knows who you are on White Sox Twitter. Um, I kind of wanted to go through like how you got where you ended up. Um, so. You know, you went to Wheaton North. You graduated a few years after I did. But, uh, you know, how, where did you go after that? Well, uh, after, let's see, 96, I graduated. And so out of college, out of high school, I went to a little college called Carroll College in Waukesha, Wisconsin. I think it's Carroll University now. Got homesick, went back real quick, went to COD, went to Western, got kicked out of there because, you know, you got to do homework, apparently. Ridiculous. <laughs> Instead of just drink every day. And then I went to Illinois Media School in 2000, graduated from there, and I was just looking for an internship at the score in 2000, but I didn't have enough time left in my um, schooling because that was a 10-month school, and I had like two months left, and so I just jumped into um, the score. Jesse Rogers, who is now the ESPN Chicago like baseball writer, he was our program director back then, and instead of giving me an internship, he gave me Illinois um football doing the play or doing the um board offing so just pressing for the commercials and such and so that's how i got my foot in the door there impressed enough so i eventually got up to like less doing his over overnight show and then jonathan hood his first show and then eventually mike north and doug lafone and then i got like burnt out i was like 23 24 uh at the midday show like the top executive producer there and i was like oh too much I was only making like $24,000 too. So I was taking all this stress of the job and then only $24,000. It was like I was broke. And so my friend told me to go to Career Builder. I went to Career Builder, sucked there, sucked at another um, like uh, sales job. And then I feel like, you know, ever seeing the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross scene where the uh, Alex Baldwin's like, uh, you know, a sales is a tough job, you know. I felt like that, and I did not get in there. Like I felt like uh, I was a failure at sales. So I was like, I'm going back to something more familiar. Went back to the score for like so 2005 until I left for San Diego in 2016, and then went to San Diego for a year. Did the Mighty 1090 uh, producing out there. Did some San Diego Padres games and some San Diego Gulls uh, board offing. And then I was like, you know, I miss the family and then moved back in with uh, Cherie, my sister, who Ian, you know, um, came back to Chicago and uh, Chicago area and I lived with her for like a year. And then I was like trying to get back into the score, which I did eventually. And then I stayed at the score until this opportunity came last year where I was kind of getting burnt out by the score. I love Lawrence's show, which I was executive producer of his show before I left. 
but I didn't like all the stuff that came after that. And so then I just um, pretty much was like, man, I wish I could do a job where I'm just talking to White Sox all day. Because at that time, I was still doing lockdown socks with Chris Tannehill. Actually, we had just uh, retired from lockdown socks in December of 2021. And then I got the call in January of 2022 from my current boss, the founder of DNVR, uh, Brandon Spano. And he wanted to talk to me about doing CHGO, which was a fledgling or a brand new company, you know, opening in Chicago in March of 2022. And I was like, oh, who is this guy? Why is this guy giving my dream job? And why is he putting all this money in front of me? This is weird. <laughs> um, and I was like, I had to call around. It's like, is this guy for real? What's going on? Why is he doing it for me? And everybody's like, yeah, DMVR is going off. PHNX was going off at the time too in Phoenix. And I was like, I don't look a gift horse in the mouth. And I just made sure that I vetted, you know, the company and made sure that I didn't make a mistake. My friend, I don't know if you guys remember Webio back in the day. <laughs> oh, God. I was just going to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. I, my, one of my friends, Matt Weber, who was a producer at The Score on the Mike North Show, like whatever that time was, got called over to WebEO um, when that started. He was a young player, a young uh, producer. Now he's a big-time host on WebEO. And I called him up because that failed because of the guy didn't have enough money. He was doing a Ponzi scheme, whatever. And so he's like, yeah, just check it out. Make sure you're good and you're, you know, believe in your self and you have confidence in what you're doing and you should be good. And so that's that. And uh, the White Sox have proceeded with two terrible years that I've been covering since that with uh, Sean Anderson and Vinny Duber. But that's the fun of it. When covering with Sean and Vinny, we can make fun of the team. And our producer, Stephen Nicholas, also contributes to our fun where we make this seasons that we've been covering not about necessarily the team, which we'll get into and we'll cuss them out every once in a while. But we, you know, do a world, you know, a, more of a global perspective on baseball and how we're feeling and how the fans are feeling when I, and our fans pretty much rock with us all the time, no matter what. So we've been blessed to have the platform to do it. And then, you know, just because the team is bad doesn't mean that we have to be bad. And so that's the approach that we take here at CHGO White Sox. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we, uh, please go ahead, Ian. Oh, I just you know when when you left for San Diego, I was like, oh, well, you know, I haven't talked to Herb in a really long time, and uh, and then we lost you. I didn't think you were going to come back, but then uh, you sh you came back a couple of years later, and I was, you know, it's a you know I enjoyed the uh, the Lawrence Holmes show. You know, it was uh, you know I enjoyed listening to it, and um, you're a big part of that, and um, and then you you know moved over to chgo and i was like all right cool well you know at least uh you know everybody's sticking around because you know we've lost a couple of people you know that have uh dipped out for you know for good and you know for you know better for them you know i mean like uh you know wayne randazzo and stuff like that you know just yeah you know ending up in a in a really solid place and you know um i'm glad that you ended up back here yeah me too i said i was gonna go to san diego for at least a year just to try it out that was out of my comfort zone because of uh, you know, I like to just be content and I'm be fine with the rest of my life, but being content, don't have to have the highest of highs, just, you know, not having too many lows and not too many highs and just right in the middle. I'm good with that. But I know every once in a while, I got to break out of that comfort zone because then I feel like my life is getting wasted if I don't 
try to do something different. And that's what San Diego was. I visited there in like 2003 and I was like, man, it would be great to live here. And then I was thinking, I was like 36 at the time when I did move to San Diego, I was like, ah, it'd be a damn shame if I didn't do what I wanted to do just because I'm scared to do it type of thing. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to save up for a couple dollars, do this Uber slash Lyft thing, and then move on out there and see how it's all about. And that's a beautiful, awesome city. I love that city. If I ever had a chance to retire there, I would do it. But, um, you know, family, you miss family. Like, I remember driving one time in San Diego. I was, you know, had the beach like two miles, two uh, blocks away from me. Everything was great. But I was like, man, just something's missing. And, you know, even though I don't see my family often, you know, I see them like four or five times a year, you know, for the holidays and birthdays and such. The fact that they were like four hours away via flight, I was like, oh, my God, that's, you know, it's too much. And so I had to move back and, uh, you know, be content in Chicago, which, you know, there's worse places to be. And it's the best city other than San Diego that I've ever been in. And so I love the city and I love Chicago. But, man, that San Diego experience was once in a lifetime, I had to do it. And I was like, if I'm on my deathbed and I don't do it, I'll be really pissed if I didn't go out and try it out. And I tried it out. It was great. Yeah, that, that the San Diego area. <laughs> like, if you want to live there, man, you better be making a little bit of money, though. It is definitely an expensive place to live, for sure. Uh, I had mm-hmm. the opportunity to uh, to visit once when uh, when I was in the military. You know, big, uh, big Navy town there on oh, the yeah. coast. Uh, so yeah, uh, it, it is absolutely gorgeous. I again, I, I have to agree with you. If I had an opportunity to maybe, you know, live there and retire there, that would be fantastic. But you gotta, you gotta put away a nice chunk of coin to, uh, to be able to uh, live comfortably in the San Diego area, or you know, find that area where you're, uh, you can stretch your, your means, if you will. But uh, that's far and few between in the in the San Diego area. So. But yeah, good for you I, for doing what you had to do, man. I lived in what you're talking about. I lived in Imperial Beach, which is just by San Ysidro, which is the last city you get to until you get to Tijuana. So I was down there. I was way, way down there. And from my porch, I can see San, uh, Tijuana at night lit up. You know, During the day, I could see it too, but it's just m- mostly mountains. But uh, yeah, I lived in the cheapest area in San Diego, and I still had a roommate. Because it's expensive as hell. I think I paid like seven hundred, eight hundred dollars a month with a roommate, and uh, it was like, golly, I understand why people want to live here, but also, man, how does people, how do people actually come up in San Diego? Because, oof, I could not imagine. Still, I was like, thir- yeah, you know, like I said, thirty six years old with a roommate. I was like, ah, this is great, but I don't, you know, want to be having a roommate for the rest of my life. I want to live independent. Or my roommate be my wife or my fiance, like it is now. Yeah, it, I mean, when you look <laughs> at the real estate prices down there, it is absolutely absurd. So you know, it's like trying, especially when you're coming from somewhere outside of San Diego and moving there. Like the, mm-hmm. you just look at the prices and you're like, okay, I don't know how I'm going to uh, manage to do that without signing away my life. And that's pretty much kind of what you have to do if you're moving into that place. Um, so let's move over to the uh, to the White Sox here. Um, mm-hmm. White Sox are starting their their uh, actually right now. Uh, they got the uh, the first batters up right now, and uh, Yuki Tucson is down three zero. Um, so uh, actually, this is uh, batter number two. Tuki has got a man on first at the moment. 
Oh, do, oh yeah, he does. Yeah, he um, does. Wonderful. He does. Um, I, I've been pleasantly surprised. You know, I was always kind of a fan of uh, of Tukey when he was. Uh, obviously, I was a, a fan when he got drafted uh, by the Diamondbacks, but then he moved over to uh, got moved over to Atlanta, and I always liked the the upside of Tukey, and uh, he struggled there. And you know, when we picked him up, I was like, you know, if we can get him to do what he does and get him to be consistent with it, we could have our, uh, a good pitcher on our hands. And uh, between him and uh, Clevenger, who's starting tomorrow, uh, SP5, as he's called mm-hmm. on White Sox Twitter. Um, so next year, the White Sox are going to have some openings on their uh, in their rotation. Um, do you think that either of those guys is going to end up sticking around and being uh, in the rotation next year? Well, start with Clevenger first. He has a weird situation with himself. I think they have a mutual option for next year. It's only like $12 million. So the way he's been pitching this year, even though it's been limited and I think he's still under a hundred innings pitched for the season, but his last couple starts since coming off of the IL and that's a big problem too. He has been on the IL multiple times this year and for long stretches of long stretches of time. He has an interesting thing. Do I run away from a team that more than likely will say, I want that mutual option picked up? Because the White Sox, as you said, have a lot of openings. They have at least three openings in their starting rotation with only Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech signed for next year. Um, and so he can just say, I will check in and say that $12 million is good. But I think he's going to go and opt out. Because he, on the free agent market, if people look past the off-the-field stuff, which I don't know, it's uncertain if they will, he'll probably make more than $12 million on the free agent market if he keeps on pitching like this. And the clubhouse apparently has no culture. It's a bad clubhouse. I don't know how he gets along with people. It seemed like he was getting along with people swimmingly. But if he's got a bad culture, like A.J. Um, Pollock or he like had a $13 million option he could have taken and just been back with the White Sox, but he chose to get out and get his $8 million up front <laughs> and, or his $5 million up front and tried to make you know $8 million off of the uh, free agent market, which he only made seven back with the Seattle Mariners who are in town right now. So he kind of lost that, but he also didn't want to be here. It was easy for him, for him to just say, yeah, let me come back. So I think Clevenger ultimately opts out and goes to free agency, which creates a thing for the White Sox and Tukey and both Jesse Schultz. I think one of those two guys is going to be on the starting rotation next year, just because I think the White Sox are cheap. We all know that. And I think they saw what Jesse Schultz, for the most part, and they'll erase that Colorado start that happened yesterday. And they'll say, well, Jesse Schultz has been pretty good. So we'll give him and Tukey to start a chance to battle for the fifth spot in our rotation. But that still leaves two open spots. And the free agent list looks nice. Starting pitchers at the top, really good. They can go and get, I mean, I'm not going to say this name, so I'm going to leave the top guy out of there because <laughs> I know they're not going to get him. And so Marcus Stroman's hurt. They probably won't get him. Um, Clayton Kershaw's probably going back. The guys I think they're going to try to get are like Hunjun Ryu type of guys or Alex Wood or Martin Perez, like mid-tier guys who won't break the bank, 
but will fill out the rotation pretty fine. So they'll get two of those guys either via trade or via the free agency to fill out the uh, top of the rotation or to fill out the rotation. But then you have question mark Dylan Cease. Like, is he this guy that showed up in 2023 or the two, the sub two to five ERA guy that showed up in 2021 or 2022? Sorry, I'm get the years back up. Or do you get the Michael Kopech that's been inconsistent his whole damn career? Or do you get the guy who's like finally wakes up and pitches well? You don't know. There's a lot of question marks with the White Sox all throughout the team. And the starting rotation is the biggest bugaboo because for the most part, the position players are all coming back except for maybe a second baseman and a catcher. And that's it. Everybody else is coming back. They're going to run that stuff back immediately. And so I think they need to find either Tukey or Jesse to be the fifth starter, which I am uh, I disagree with. But I know the White Sox, they won't go out and get three starters in this free agent market because that's a lot of money to them. So I'm going to be realistic and say they're going to choose one, if not both of these guys, to return as the starting rotation uh, members. Yeah, I, you know, you threw out some interesting names there, not not necessarily names that interest me, um, but just, uh, <laughs> you know, names that are possibilities for next year and, um, you know, within the free agent um, market. Um, and I don't disagree with you there, and especially, you know, when you look at... Uh, you know, they did get some top end uh, talent in double A in some of the recent trades, but uh, the triple A, you know, starting pitching staff has just been absolutely brutal. And, uh, you know, with Martin, uh, with TJ and then Burke, mm-hmm. you know, who both of those guys you were hoping to take steps and one's got oh, TJ wow. and then the other one, we don't know what injury he's got. You know, it's been a myriad of injuries throughout the entire year. And then he just disappeared off the face of the earth. Speaking of Sean Burke, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm pretty much with you right, right there thinking that it's, you know, they're going to have to fill through free agency and I'm almost, you know, pretty sure as well that Clevenger will probably try and find a spot elsewhere as well. So, um, yeah, that awesome like, that'd be great if he does too. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't complain. It just, it feels like a broken record, you know, when you talk about Sean Burke and, and uh, Davis Martin and waiting for guys to make that next step. And, you know, we saw some really good things out of Davis Martin when he was up with the MLB club last season. And here we are thinking, here's a kid that can uh, possibly do some things for us. And not so much. And at least I, Burke just pretty much disappeared. Uh, it just feels like the last three or four seasons, the last three or four years of this white size club, we cannot catch a break. It, it, I, I, there's like when, you know, when we get our, uh, uh, what hell? Oh, wow. I just had a ridiculous brain fart here. Um, who are you talking about? Uh, uh Herb Schneider, Herm Schneider, Herm Schneider. When, <laughs> sorry. When Herm Schneider left, it was like, God, I don't know why I just could not pull that out. It, uh, when he left, it just seemed like everything went down the tubes. I mean, we enjoyed years and years and years of, I don't know, maybe luck 
Maybe Herm had some kind of special trick up his sleeve, but this team was one of the least injured teams in the world. And the minute he was gone, it was like everything was a, it's a crapshoot. Now you can't, you, you can pick a name out of a hat and that guy's going to end up injured at some point. So yeah, uh, difficult times. And it looks like, like, you know, just to kind of piggyback off of what, uh, Mr. Lawrence here is saying not to get Herb and Herm confused, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, I it seeing that uh there are some holes to fill, you hope. You hope and you hang your you hang your head on dreams, hoping that the White Sox can find something of value out there on the free agent and trade market because uh, you know, hanging our head on guys in the in the in the system right now is uh oh, it's a it's a difficult task. Yeah, well I mean yeah, I, I was thinking most of like it would be time for and I know he's been, you know, injured and he's kind of still young. The Jared Kelly is the Dahlquist of the world would be developed by now and be, you know, on the door knocking for the league, but apparently no. Well, I mean, you know, Kelly has taken some steps this year and he's he's uh he's put together some respectable outings, but you know, they're in a piggyback role or in relief. So that's yeah, not ex- out of the bullpen. So <laughs> yeah, not exactly what you're looking for. Thompson is, you know, uh, you know, the other night, I think he gave up like eight, nine, 10 runs or something like that. And he's hit or miss. And Dahlquist is, uh, even more miss than hit, uh, you know, in an 80, 20 split. Um, yeah, I, it's just, you know, it's not good. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to hang your, your hopes on Nate Fisher and AAA? Absolutely not. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's been ugly. Um, but then, you know, you look to the, you know, quote unquote, uh, fourth starter in the rotation. You got Michael Kopech. And um, he hasn't been able to get out of his own way this year. And I don't know exactly what's wrong with him. Do you, do you have uh, some theory as to uh as to why he's having issues i think that he especially is adverse to contact and maybe for good reason because when he does throw you know fastballs down the middle it gets rocked it gets crushed and so he does not want the batter to touch the balls and that's why you see the high strikeouts that's why you see the high walks and unlike his counterpart dylan cease you know, for the most part, especially last year when he was leading the league in walks, he got the job done. He got out of that those situations, and he would have a steady demeanor with himself, not going too high or too low with Dylan Cease in 2022. Michael Kopech's whole career, I think he's way too emotional, way too um, – and this is what happened to Dylan Cease back early in his White Sox career where he would be cruising and then have one bad – inning and it would derail the whole start. Michael Kopech kind of does that, but his batting is in the first inning where he has like a <laughs> six plus ERA. And so yeah. he has oh, that dear. really bad first inning and then he calms down second, third, fourth, and then the fifth, again, another really bad inning for him, especially this year. And so I don't know if he needs to go and see a sports psychologist. I don't know if he needs to go and just decompress and have more of an effort attitude towards them, towards pitching, because right now he's still a thrower. You see the glimpses of him pitching. He had a stretch back in May and into June where he was just throwing strikes, filling up the strike zone. I think 10 strikeouts and one start, nine, 10, and then nine again with only four walks in those four starts. 
that is the glimpse that the White Sox are like, okay, there we go. Here we go. This is Michael Kopech about to go from one point to the next, become the pitcher that we needed to be. No, it's been really bad in the second half where he's still kind of in his own head because he doesn't really have a secondary pitch he can go to consistently and get people out. You know, the slider works every once in a while. The curve works every once in a while, but it's not consistent. So now he has to find the the fastball. And the command on the fastball has been hit or miss, too. So he's just like, I have nothing. The confidence you can tell when he's out there is little to none. And so I don't know what the White Sox need to do. I know they have a sports psychologist on hand. I know they have Ehats who can work with them with the, you know, the core velocity belt and all the good stuff. But it doesn't matter until Michael Kopech gets this fixed, gets the brain fixed, and realize he has some of the best stuff in the game. Fastball, when it's up there, electric. It's got some nice rise, and the, pit, and the hitters tell you that he can't mess with that they can't mess with him. I don't remember. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember the Yankees start last year. I think it was in New York City, and he dominated the Yankees. You know, the judges, the Stantons of the world dominated him. That's what I need to see. I, mean, I know. I think he needs to see that for himself. Look at the tape and say, I'm that guy. I'm not the guy giving up four solo shots to the Cincinnati Reds when we're winning 16-4. to four. I'm the dude who could strike out the Yankees with their motorist row of people. And no one can touch myself when I throw it over the plate. I don't care if they hit it. If they hit it, so be it. Next batter. And he has to have that type of mentality where, that's it. I'm the best. I'm going to throw this ball and maybe like Dylan Cease, make a, make a poem, a terrible poem about your slider, make a <laughs> terrible poem about your curveball, your four seam fastball, and just be confident that you are the best person on the mound for that time and throw your pitches with conviction, conviction, because it seems like half the time, these are non-competitive pitches that he's throwing, especially when he gets to two strikes. Yeah, I think he's like too scared of giving up a hit when, with two strikes instead of, I got two strikes. I'm going to attack this guy. That guy should be scared of me because I'm Michael Kopech type of attitude. But I don't think he has that in him right now. And I don't know if he can get that. He has to fake it until he makes it because that guy has premium stuff. But I don't think he has premium brain or pitcher brain right now, which that's where he needs to go to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I, I just, as a Sox fan walking into the stadium uh, at the home opener, and, you know, the excitement that we all kind of felt for this team, the new manager, and, and things were supposed to kind of turn themselves around this year. And Pedro had said all the right things, you know, before the season started. And you walk in and you go, okay, Michael Kopech's taking the hill today. They, uh, you know, the White Sox were coming off of a, a, a two-game split, or I'm sorry, four-game split against Houston. And there was still this uh, air of, like, you know, we're going to, we're, we're finally going to do something this year. Right. And then Michael Kopech comes in and he gives up that seven home runs in his, you know, the home opener. And I think, you know, of course, everybody there was deflated. You know what I mean? It was like, this is not the way you want to start your first home game of the season. But at the same time, you, you talk to folks after the game and I, I know I did. And, and everybody was like, ah, that's not who Michael Kopech is. This is not who we're going to see the rest of the season. And what an unfortunate omen that first start at home was for him this year. Because we have seen a lot of that. The dinger is just his biggest uh, his biggest Achilles at the moment. So, yeah, I can't agree with you more on that one, Herb. 
Um, I've got a theory. Yeah, I just wish he was better. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just wish like, he was better. better. Yeah, I've got a theory about him. Um, and, you know, like, th- this has kind of been a, a formulating theory over a while um, because a lot of people have been complaining about, uh, you know, Rick Hahn with that particular trade and Yohan Makata having, you know, the health issues and then Kopech not meeting his expectations either. And, you know, my response about Kopech is he's 100% not the same person that the White Sox got when they traded, you know. If you remember mm-hmm. back to when Kopech showed up, you know, he's this powerlifting, you know, uh, f- you know, you know, for lack of a better term, like frat boy type of guy, power lifter, you know, just testosterone, you know, trying to throw 110 miles an hour. And, uh, you know, he had an air of cockiness around him when he showed up. But, you yeah. know, there was mm-hmm. there was a it, it wasn't I should say it was on the verge of cockiness. Anyway, there was an air of confidence around him that seems to be lacking at the moment. And I think that's kind of what Herb's been trying to touch on with that, you know, going out there and having that mental state to know that he can run over lineups left and right. And he just yeah. hasn't done that. Yeah. I mean, the TJ warm, you know, obviously probably warmed down a little bit, but then the, uh, the 2020 thing and whatever he had mm-hmm. going on personally off of the field, you know, I mean, obviously we know that he got the, the divorce and whatever, but I think, you know, whatever was going on with that whole, you know, the whole COVID pandemic in, in general, whatever it was, I think it just kind of took something out of him. And I, he, he's clearly not gotten it back. Not um, at all. And that 2021 season where he actually did pitch and they put him in that role where he's like a spot starter slash bullpen guy. I think ultimately that's where he's going to be. He's going to be back in the bullpen guy, but you know, back in the bullpen guy with walk issues doesn't work. So he has to find that guy you were talking about, Ian, because that guy wouldn't give a damn. That guy punched his roommate, had to fight. That's half the reason why he got in trouble. He was the minor league pitcher of the year for that for the whole league. And that's why he rose to the top when we when we got him. I was like, man, they got Yoan Mankata, one of the high rising prospects, switch hitting third baseman or switch hitting second baseman when we got him, then went to third. And Michael Kopech, who throws 100, Rick Hahn, congratulations. What an awesome trade. And, yeah, yeah that guy, and I, I 100% agree, Ian, like, it, it is gone. That killer mentality is gone from Michael Kopech. And whatever he needs to find it, however he needs to find it, I don't know if he found religion or Buddhism or something chill or <laughs> ayahuasca or whatever he's found, go the opposite way. And yeah. find that animal with inside. And, you know, you can be the same guy off the field. But on the field, it's all business. And it's all, I'm Michael Kopech. These people can't touch me. You think, you know, like, you think the top pitchers in the world worry about what the guy's going to do? Like, people give up home runs. Garrett Cole gets up home runs every once in a while. It's like, give me the ball. I'm going to strike the next guy out. That's the mentality Michael Kopech's got to go through because – we're, they're all going to give up home runs, but he's given up a lot of home runs, and then he also walks people, and then he also gives up singles and doubles in between. So he needs that killer mentality that just says, you are the best, Michael, and go out there and feel the best. I don't know what they got to do about that first inning thing, like make him pitch a full first inning in the bullpen before to get those runs out and then act like he's the second inning or have an opener for him. 
And this, when he comes in, it's the second inning. So we're facing maybe four, five, and six, or facing seven, eight, nine in the lineup. So it's a little more, you're easing into the ball game. You get a little bit more easier uh, batters to go against. But if they're going to have one in the starting rotation, which it seems they're going to have to have in the starting rotation next year, they have to find a way to refine what he does. Because if he's in the rotation and he's pitching like he has in 2023, that 2024 team is doomed from the start. Uh, speaking of uh, lack of killer instinct, um, so this season, who's to blame? Is it the is it the players or is it the management? <laughs> no pressure. Of course, the answer is everything. But <laughs> if I had to assign more blame, it's a hundred. It's like ninety five percent on the management. The players are only here because the management brought them here, and I think the players can see the same thing that we can see that. There's no accountability for failure on this organization. You fail in this organization, you're just going to get reassigned somewhere. You know, Nick Hostiller's still somewhere in the White Sox. And I don't know if he necessarily failed, but I think that uh, his drafts weren't awesome. I think uh, he's still somewhere in the organization. I think uh, uh, I know that uh, the former batting coach, Steverson, is still like the assistant to Kenny Williams. Um, if Dave Wilder didn't get caught up in his uh, whole thing down there in the Dominican, he would still be on on the roster. I guarantee. I don't know if he's in jail still. If he gets out of jail, Kenny's looking for him to get a job. I mean, Daryl Boston, <laughs> yeah, like, even a consulting like, job. Yeah, like it's all these things that the players can see. Like if we fail, there's no actual uh, accountability for us failing. The only people who paid with their jobs last year for that 81 and 81 team that was supposed to compete for the AL Central were Super Joe McEwing and Frank Minichino, the hitting coach. Only two guys that got fired. Tony left because of uh, illness. And they could see that, and they said, okay, we're 81 and 81 this year. What are you, the management, going to do to improve our team? And all they did, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so I figured I'd bring him out. If we're going to mention him, i got to bring him out. Uh Oh, look at that speed. Um, but like they have no accountability. And so they're like, oh, what are we going to do in the offseason? How we're going to get how we're going to get better. They go out and get Mike Clevenger, jump the market to get Mike Clevenger in November. Well, they could have waited for him and got comparable or better pitchers with better track records and a better um, would have been pitching more than 100 innings by now, like a Michael Walkout in San Diego. They could have waited for him and gave him a deal that they gave Mike Clevenger. And then they go out and spend the most money they've ever did in getting Andrew Benintendi. I didn't mind the deal. My partner on CHGO White Sox, Sean Anderson, absolutely hated the deal before it started. Yeah. When it did happen, and every single day since then, <laughs> he was like, Andrew Benintendi is not the guy you break the bank for to make you know your highest paid player in franchise history. He, he says Michael Conforto would have been a better fit, but he would also say the same thing that, Conforto's not the guy you break the bank for either, no. even though Conforto's having a better offensive year. I don't know if he's having a better defensive year. But like they're getting those two players and then bringing back Elvis to play second base, that's, a, that's not inspiring. That team, on paper, I thought was an 85-win team. Good enough to win the AL Central, yes, but not good enough to win the, the championship, to battle with the Yankees, to battle with the Astros or the Mariners or the, any of the teams in the AL West. So I was like, Rick Hahn's own words when he started this rebuild was, ask me after the parade, and we're going to be competing for multiple championships. 
They haven't competed for any championship. I mean, they made the playoffs two years, won one game in each of those series. That's it. And so I was holding to the standard of you're going to be competing for championships, not competing for the AL Central title because that's what does that get you? Nothing. And so I think that the players see that, us fans see that, and we're like, what are you doing, Rick Hahn? When is it going to be a chance or, or Kenny Williams because he's his boss? And we don't know who's doing these moves right now because they're so secretive and so cloaked. But both of those guys have deserved their firing for a long time. But there's no accountability with Jerry Reinsdorf. So even after this year, where they're currently, I think, 26 games under 500, do you know if they're going to get fired? You know, any other organization with a 500 record and then 26 under 500, the GM would have been fired from last year. Yeah. This organization, you don't know if they're constantly fired. More than likely, he's coming back to suck up the next year into 2024. Same thing with Kenny Williams. And so that's it's them. They put this team together. They put this team together, thought they would create some culture. And they said there was no leaders. Like Pedro said at the beginning, uh, at the end of the trade deadline, it's like, I thought there were going to be leaders here. There are no leaders here. And I was wrong about that. And that's an indictment on the players themselves and the management that put these players together. And Pedro himself, as um, the manager, you're supposed to be kind of a leader yourself. But I think it's all-encompassing. But if I had to assign the blame, it goes right to Kenny Williams and um, and Rick Hahn. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Um you know, obviously, I think the the players bear some, obviously uh, quite a bit of the weight as well. I mean, you know, especially you know, like when you see, uh, you know, when they talk about the getting guys out of the clubhouse that are a problem for the culture, and one mm-hmm. of the guys that leaves is Lance Lynn, and when he leaves, he leaves with a six six two three ERA or whatever it was he has and now he's in LA and he's got a one point four three ERA magically and he's not giving up any hits to left handers. He's you know he gave up a couple of home runs in the first start or two. But uh after that, you know, the guy's just been lights out and it's like that guy you one know silly tweak. One silly tweak. I and he know. looks like Lance Lynn of his prime. Yeah. Yeah. I think they what took the took the cutter away from him, or told him to pretty throw much. it less often. Yeah, they told him to you know stick with his four seamer, uh, you wow. know as often as possible, and or th- and throw that cutter less often. And he has uh, he's looked like a world beater out there. Yeah, and the Dodgers fixed him that quickly. <laughs> Imagine just having an organization. It's like yeah, let's get him because we see what he's doing wrong, and we can fix him and. Instantly. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> speaking of. I mean, not for Lance, but, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to ask you this really quick, and then I want to then I want to move on. But uh, Elvis and Yaz, uh, are you mm-hmm. launching them into the sun? Or are you letting them stick around until the end of the year? I would have launched them already. Like the trade deadline on the first, I've been like, okay, it's been real, guys. Um I hope you guys catch on with the team that's going to playoffs like you almost did last year, Elvis. And uh, thank you, sirs. It's been real. Um, because you know they're not going to be here next year. You know that they're not going to reason well. Do you? Pause. <laughs> you don't know if Elvis is going to be here next year because the White Sox are the White Sox. And you kind of know that 
Yasmani's not going to be here, but also they don't have a catcher for next year because you're not going into the next year with either Carlos Perez or Sebi Zavala or even Corey Lee when he comes up eventually, whenever this is going to happen. Yeah, that'll be tough. So I could see the White Sox signing either one of those guys back. But more than likely, those guys are gone. And so there's no reason for them to be blocking players that could be getting some time. I would want to see Carlos Perez catch majority of games now instead of Yasmani Grandal. But I know the Sebi Zavala being an IL thing kind of messes that up because they don't really have another catcher available right now. I mean, they can do the Corey Lee thing, but I guess they're waiting for him to get back up to speed from the injury he had with the Astros. So I would want to see one of those guys catch the remainder of the games. And the same thing with Lenin Sosa. Tim Anderson comes off the suspended list after tomorrow's game. So Wednesday, I can expect that Lenin Sosa getting very little time going forward because they're going to be playing Elvis Andres at second base. Of course, Tim at shortstop. But, like, yeah, Elvis is hitting into the 300s in the last couple months. Who cares? What does that do for you? Exactly. Who's that, who's that work for? Like, does it work for Elvis? I, I appreciate him doing well now, but it doesn't work for the White Sox. Yeah, it's like let's three, see three, what three months Lenin too Sosa. late. Yeah, yeah, let's see what Lennon and Sosa can do. Maybe bring up Rodriguez. I don't know, but bring this would be playing exclusively. Like, yesterday's game, they had Trace Thompson playing in right field. And I almost somebody it was so infuriating like i know what trace thompson can do he's trace thompson he's got like 18 (laughs) yes i don't need him to ever play for the white Sox again oscar cola should be playing every game in right field every single game and the same thing should be happening with with uh leaning sosa at second base Zach Rumelard's a little long, too. He's 29. I don't know if he's necessarily he's a utility your guy. He bunts a little too much for me. Yeah, exactly. He's a fifth infielder guy. Perfect guy for a, on a team never starting. Just, you know, a spot start every once in a while, filling in for Tim or whoever is at second base. Perfect. But the lineup yesterday, you had two guys come off the bench who were rookies who provided something in that eighth inning, the seven-run eighth inning they had. You had the game-breaking open um, double by Oscar Colas, two RBIs there, and then the three-run home run by Lenin Sosa. Both didn't start that game. And so I want to see more of that. I want to see them fail at the major league level. I want to see them succeed at the major league level, and then the pitchers adjust to them, and then see how they adjust to those adjustments, and then go into the offseason saying, you know what, I did this, that, and the other badly. I did this, that, and the other well. I'm going to go and focus on my strengths and also work, you know, work on my floor so I can be a better, well-rounded player when I hit the uh, major leagues next year. Elvis Andres is just blocking that. And whenever Gavin Cheap plays right field or Trace Thompson plays right field, he's blocking Oscar Colas from getting more developed here at the majors. And I know Pedro said he cares about wins more than development. It's the most ignorant thing to say on a team that's 26 games below so 500. Dumb. Wins mean zero things. Mean zero right now. Absolutely, we're zero. not going to sacrifice wins. Are you? Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, it's just done. <laughs> um. Yeah, and it's becoming Devington slash uh, like oh. Jim Boylan's type levels so of yeah. He's those quotes. quotes. Yeah, yeah. The quotes are bad, and it's just silly. And you know. Um, the the weird thing was is that Colas started against a left-handed pitcher and then he sat against a right-handed starter. I like I was trying to figure out what the heck's going on and that actually leads into the next question perfectly. 
Is Pedro a one and done for you? If Rick Hahn comes back, no, he's not one and done. I think Pedro was his handpicked choice. He allowed, they allowed Rick to get his guy, and he wanted this guy for, you know, I guess for a couple of years now. But I think if Rick comes back, he's never going to fire Pedro, especially since we've seen that Bob Nightingale uh, gave out the deets on contracts. Both yeah. Rick Hahn has years, one huh? year left on his contract, and then Pedro has two years after this one. So I know Jerry doesn't want to swallow more money, but it's Pedro's like negligible in the money he makes. And so if Rick Hong comes back, Pedro's coming back. But if it were for me, it's a sunk cost. Like, you know, he can't manage. And whatever that means, like the clubhouse was bad and that's his clubhouse. That's to me, the most important part of a manager's job is to make sure the players are ready and prepared to play. They don't need to like each other. They don't need to do anything kumbaya, but you need to be a manager of people and you need to be manage egos and personalities and the psych- psychology of man. You need to know. And it seems like this team has gotten worse, which I couldn't believe gotten worse clubhouse wise <laughs> than it was with Tony. And so, yeah, I need for him to be gone because it was a, a valiant effort by the White Sox. I initially was like, why are we picking up the Kansas City guy when they don't even want him? Then some people talked to me and said, yeah, he's an actual good baseball guy. He's got more analytic base than a, a normal manager. I haven't seen it because he's bunting all the damn time. He's allowing Zach Rimmelard to bunt all the time. He's walking players and indiscriminately. I don't think he's a good in-game manager, which I think is the least important part of the manager's job, but you could see that actually costs sometimes wins and losses with Pedro. And usually for me, managers are negligible. They neither cost nor help you win games. They can, you know, assist in winning games, but their move should, you know, be by the book for the most part. You're not trying extra stuff. And like you're saying, Ian, putting Oscar Colas in versus the lefty, I like it. Awesome. He has to do yes. that in his regular job. Right. But then the next day, it's a righty. Right. You know, what's Trace Thompson going to do? And Kate Jones is a righty himself. <laughs> like, I, it's inconsistency. And then at the beginning of the year, he's like, I like Andrew Benintini at the three-hitter. No, he's not a power hitter. He's not your best hitter. Whenever you think of the lineup construction, Andrew Benintini is not the three, the typical three-hitter, the newfangled three-hitter, or anything. He's not then he moves him up. Yeah, then he moves up to second, which... I'm fine with that. He's an on-base guy more than anybody on this White Sox lineup yeah. for the most part. That was fine. And then when he moved up to the leadoff hitter, his best spot this year, he took him down when Timmy kind of got a little bit hit at second at the second spot, which is another problem. He took way too long to recognize that Tim wasn't it and that Tim wasn't doing the job at leadoff. And that was half the problem with the White Sox offense. <sighs> if he's not going to get on base and he's going to be bad in the field and he's going to not get hits, you got to move him. And I would have moved him to six or seven until he proved himself to be the guy that he was in 2022. But no, Pedro was too ingratiated with Tim and doing this, uh, like, I don't know, grandfather him into the, the leadoff spot. Instead of seeing the problem, recognizing it, talking to Tim like a man and saying, hey, Tim, I can't have you there. If you're not going to hit, I'm going to have to drop you down and line up more than just like, why do you drop him from the first to the second spot? 
to me, that's negligible. Like, yes, you start off the game as the first hitter, but Still the, the second hitter is supposed to also get on base too. So, yeah, they're both in the first inning. So I would have dropped them way down and, like, uh, had somebody else who can take a walk, can see a couple more pitches at the two-hitter. But Pedro's way too long to react to what he's seeing in front of him. And don't even get me started with the pitching changes. Like, you see a pitcher. Like, I think there was a Lance Lynn start. Well, he was cruising. I think he had a bunch of strikeouts or a no-hitter going in the seventh inning. But he was nearing his tire point. He was yeah. tired the inning before. He didn't have anybody warming up in the seventh inning to start that seventh inning up. And then Lance subsequently, I think, gave up four runs in that inning and either lost that game or put the White Sox in a really bad spot instead of having a guy ready say, hey, Lance, I know you're doing X, Y, and Z, having a good game. I'm going to have somebody throwing just in case you falter, you get tired, et cetera, et cetera. And then have somebody come in when he gets up one hit or walk or something like that. But he's just too late to react. And I don't know if he's deferred to Ethan Katz, but that's what I do. I would do as I was a first-year manager. I would defer to my pitching coach to make the pitching changes that I would see. And if I felt something at a time, something in my gut, I would maybe you know usurp Ethan Katz in that point and say, hey, man, I'm going to go out there and take him out. Is somebody ready type of thing. But I don't think he utilizes Ethan Katz well enough or Ethan Katz is not doing the job well enough because that pitching staff, as far as the pitching changes, have been bad this year. And so I think he should be a one and done, but I see him coming back because Rick Hahn is probably coming back. Well, I have a question for you or or a theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rick Renteria, mm-hmm. um, he was a, a quote-unquote rebuild manager. And mm-hmm. when they got rid of him and brought Tony in, they brought in a bunch of veteran guys. Mm-hmm. They then have Tony. It falls flat on its face. Then they bring in Ricky Renteria version 2.0, but he's still got veterans in the clubhouse. So he's kind of walking around on eggshells and not making the changes that he wants to make with the ball club. And uh, and this is what you get from that. I mean, not only a do you have first time manager who's have you know has growing pains of trying to figure. You know, it's like no matter how much you think you know about being a manager, you don't know anything about being a manager until you're a manager. So mm-hmm. you know he's going through his first season, but then he's trying to deal with these clubhouse issues where you've got these guys who are set in their ways and whatever. And this is the result of that. It's just bad management in general. So that makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. But I can't but really you need to have like, of it. sorry about that. Go ahead, Danny. Sorry. No, I was, I, I'm just basically saying I can't put a finger on any of it. Really. We, you know, when, when Pedro was hired, you know, we had everybody and their brother put, you know, every, you know, paid writer out there, every blogger out there, everybody that knew anything about that hiring process and, and seen and heard anything, seen that, you know, Pedro Grafal was an analytics driven guy and he was a scout at one point in his career and he was a bench coach and he was a minor league coach, you know, all these things and all the things that he said sounded fantastic. Mm-hmm. And we didn't see, I mean, not even one iota of any of that really come together. There wasn't, there were so many of these different hats that he had worn in his career before becoming the manager of the White Sox that you would have thought you would see at least one of those things come through. And I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I have not seen a single thing come through 
And then like Ian says, you know, uh, Ian asked me the same question, actually. Uh, was it last week or the week before about, you know, thinking if I was, you know, am I thinking I'm going to see Pedro come back? And I kind of followed suit with your answer, Herb, with, you know, <laughs> this White Sox organization is loyal to a fault. You know, we've seen it time and time again where guys should be let go and they don't. They just get moved, whether it's a lateral move or, or even a motion to get them out of the spot that they're in, which seems absolutely ridiculous to me. Like, if I do my job badly, I don't get promoted, right? I, I don't get a, yeah. a, a better, I don't get a better label put in front of my name. You know, I don't get that title. I don't get more money. I get canned, you know? Yep. And it, this team doesn't seem to operate that way, but the fact that he came in and he just seemed completely unprepared for what he was going to have to deal with, with, I, I don't know if it was, you know, upper management handcuffing him or, you know, the players in the locker room, the clubhouse, we've heard about all the, the, the issues, but my answer to Ian was, is just like you say, if Rick Hahn is still there and they're going to, and now we're hearing about these meetings, you know, we're hearing about these mm-hmm. interviews and we'll talk a little bit more about that later on in the show here, but you know, we're hearing these things. I basically said, like, I am pretty sure they're probably going to have a little sit down with him and they're going to say, you know, why should we keep you after all of this? And literally I feel like it's going to be as easy as saying, you know what? I had those, those, uh, those attitude problems. I had, I had guys who were, you know, kind of irreverent towards the changes that I want to make. And, you know, we heard about rules that were going to be put into place before the season. And then we get, you know, Keenan Middleton come out and say, there were no rules. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like Pedro can come back and say, well, you know what? I did have rules. I just couldn't enforce them because they had these veteran supposed veteran leadership guys that just didn't want to buy into any of it. So, you know, I feel like he could do that in an interview before the season's over. I, apparently, apparently they're, they're conducting these interviews right now, but uh, I feel like he could come in and say, Hey, you know, I need another season where I can instill my, my philosophies and, and my way of, of going about things in the baseball life with the White Sox organization. My only concern is, is everything that you brought up in your argument against them is absolutely true. And what difference is a year going to make? What difference is an off season going to make? And what difference is, like you say, there's only a handful of uh, uh, slots really that are going to be available. Most of them pitching slots. How much of a difference is it going to make in the culture of this team? And are they going to be able to adapt a winning attitude? And I really don't see it. Yeah, I agree. It's just bad. It's just sad that we know that it's not going to change. Nothing's going to change until it actually does. And then then we're going to have some hope. And then the thing is, if they fire Kenny and or Rick Hahn, they're just going to bring in Chris Getz, who also unqualified for the job I think he has and unqualified for the job we might get. Or Jeremy Haber, which I don't know Jeremy Haber. I don't know how he operates, but he's been in the White Sox organization for such a long time. I must, I assume he operates like his general manager does and as an executive vice president. So it's just going to be recycled stuff, as you said. And Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams are going to get the the Gar Pax thing. One's going to get fired and off the team. The other one's going to be in some advisory role, some uh, super money guy who just goes around and greets the fans and such. Because John Paxson's still on the Bulls staff. Like, he still gets paid by them. 
there's no firing in the Reinsdorf thing except for unless you're guard form. Sorry, guard, you had to leave. I don't know which one's going to be Kenny, which, if Kenny's gar or uh, Rick's gar, but one of them has to leave, please. Yeah. I'm kind of curious, you know, I mean, because they did hire that uh, Sam Mondry Cohen from the Phillies. And uh, as he's now part of the, uh, you know, part of the operations, maybe, you know, I mean, he did a, a nice job with the Phillies uh, building their analytics situation i mean maybe he might be somebody who gets some sort of a look but uh i mean as far as rick Hahn goes i mean we can create the uh you know you're talking about a some sort of a promotion we can uh the vp of suckage or something we'll come up with some some sort of title um gm emeritus he just forever yeah exactly <laughs> yeah just why not um so the one thing that people say that that rick Hahn has done well for his career, has been trading established talent for minor league top-end talent. Um, there were quite a few trades made this uh, trade deadline. And we'll keep the one for uh, for last, but, uh, you know, of those trades. But uh, did you like the trades that were made? Did you think that uh, they got good value for them? Yeah, I liked, like and you said, I think that's what Rick Hahn does well. Like, Lucas Giolito and Reynaldo Lopez going to the Angels and getting Carroll back, I think it's a steal. Absolute steal. Like, I don't know much about him, but right in the top, what, 50 now or 80? Well, yeah, and they actually bumped him back, but, uh, you know. Yeah, and he's a catcher, switch it a catcher, young player. I like that. We, You know, he's probably not ready for the league until a couple of years, but to get anything from Lucas and Ronaldo who were on their last deal and they themselves were part of the rebuilding process coming back, coming over here with Dane Dunning for Adam Eaton. So getting that trade done was great. The same thing with Lance Flynn going out there to LA with Joe Kelly. I guess Nostrini is good. I don't know. I, I just hear from people like yourselves who do minor league coverage. And so I said, I looked at all the, the, uh, the Kylie McDaniels of the world and yourselves, future Sox people. And I was like, okay, most people are giving Rick Hahn a pretty good grade. I gave him like an A minus on the, on the trades that he made getting Corey Lee for Kendall Graveman going to Houston. I thought was also a steal. Kendall Graveman was going to make a lot of money next year, eight more million dollars. Cause that's Rick Hahn likes to give, $8 million deals to relievers instead of just developing relievers themselves. Which like they've the done. They raised you. Yeah, exactly. And then getting people off the street, like Gregory Santos and Keenan Middleton himself. So getting Corey Lee, a guy that, you know, I don't think he's going to be a ass kicking the great starter or anything special. I think he's just a, a, a placeholder for the most part eventually, but he's a major league catcher. He will be in the major league somewhere somehow to get him for a reliever that we weren't going to reuse and was going to be taking up $8 million of space for next year's team. Brilliant move. And then I kind of think of the last trade, the fourth trade, but I thought the Rick Hahn did very well and he deserves plaudits for turning those players who were underperforming with the White Sox into young stars that might perform well for the White Sox in the future. That's where I, I would have gone a little farther if I was Rick Hahn, I would have 
entertain whatever Baltimore was talking about. I would have entertained some more deals. Maybe not trade Luis Robert unless I'm like knocked over my seat. Like if Baltimore's giving me their whole minor league system, maybe I gotta <laughs> get rid of Luis Robert. Yeah. But I would have like with the job security that Rick Hahn has seemingly, I would have said, nah, rebuild 2.0 or 3.0. We're getting rid of everything that can anything that is not tied down, we're getting rid of. We're gonna start this thing over again. And maybe this time, instead of when we get to the apex, just going to get one player like Dallas Keuchel, we go and get the top rotation guy or the John Lester, if you will, what the Cubs did in 2015. Let's go and get John Lester and John Lackey to supplement where our minor league minor league didn't and make sure that our major league team is stacked while our minor league team keeps on feeding us good young players. But the White Sox neither have good major leaguers nor good minor leaguers, but <laughs> I would have went with the, just the approach of just getting rid of most of the players and then restacking and the, the, the deck and seeing where I can go because he's not getting fired. So why are you like all soft and trying to, we're going to compete in 2024. How? Yeah. With lack of, well, you don't have that much movement. Are you going to get some great player? You're going to get that guy. I didn't want to talk to about as a starter. No, you're not getting him. So yeah. you're not coming back to the top of the heap because these players are somehow going to stay healthy and or play at their 90th percentile. That's what the White Sox count on. Staying healthy and everybody per- performs like they did in 2005. Everybody yeah. at, their, at their apex. So do you want to remind him? Ian of that uh, last deal that he could. Oh, not well, remember there's the actually, there's period. actually a few. So, I want, uh, well, with the big one, the yeah, big I'll one, I know yeah, you know, I'll get that in a second. I, I just, I'm really curious as to uh, where uh, Herb. I'm curious sits as well on that one. Cause uh, that one's a polarizing one for oh, yeah. uh, fans. I get so many, yeah, no, I no. get so many tweets. Uh, um, so uh, there was Keenan Middleton for Juan Carella. And yep. then there was uh, the Dodgers uh, with the international money, one million of international money for uh, Maximo Acosta and uh, Aldrin Batista. Mm. And then there was uh, Luis Patino as well. Yeah, I remember former that. number one overall. Oh, the White Sox. Rick Hahn loves those guys. It's it's ridiculous how many good top prospects of yesteryear this this franchise has uh but yeah we'll move on to the other the other trade and i want to know which side of the fence you're on uh jake berger uh everybody you know i love jake berger i've been watching Mm -hmm. jake berger since 2018 17 um and he gets traded for a left-handed pitcher who has been mentioned as the best pitcher in the minor leagues in 2021 when he had a 095 uh, batting average against against left-handers and 193 against right-handers. Add TJ. He's back now. He's only at like 50 innings. So obviously he's hitting that TJ wall on that year of rehab, so he's not doing well. I get so many tweets about uh, about Jake Berger and how how the White Sox could trade away Jake Berger for Jake Eater. What side of the fence are you on? Are you are you uh, 
you know, are you mad as hell and going to let everybody know about it? Or like, what's, uh, where, where are you at on this? I love Jake Berger. I love the player. I love the person. And I said as much when the trade went down, I was caught off guard that he was getting traded, but I was, as I said, trade everybody who's available to be traded, especially players that are not going to have a spot next year. And that's what Jake Berger is. Yoan Mankata is coming back. He's going to make $24 million. There's no spot for Jake Berger, except for when Yoan inevitably gets hurt next year, then he can play third base. (laughs) And yeah, I know he played a little second before he got traded. Yeah. Nobody's taking that contract. (laughs) Exactly. And, but when I saw what they're getting back and like you're saying, Jake Eater, I was like that money, that sounds good. Like we got an actual prospect that could hit. It's a boomer bust prospect, but like you said, he's coming off of TJ and he's pitching and he pitched well, I think sometimes with the Marlins, uh, yeah, with the Marlins farm team. I know he hasn't pitched that well with the White Sox, but it's a new organization. It's the guy's getting traded. He's a young guy. He's probably just, you know, his head's going, you know, a thousand miles per minute. Yeah. And so I'm going to give him this offseason, come back next year full and ready to go for the 2024 season. I expect him to be in the minor leagues that whole year and building up his innings base. And then maybe being a name you could talk about in 2025. And like you said, he's a long-term fix for a guy in Jake Berger, who I thought is good this year, but I've seen so many Jake Bergers in this organization. I've seen the Josh Fields. I've seen Daniel Palka. I've seen Avi Sal Garcia. I've seen Carlos Quinton. I've seen them all. And the White Sox held on to all those guys way too late. It's better to trade a guy a year too early than a year too late. And to get Jake Eater back for Jake Berger, I'm fine with it. I am not a guy that looks at the results. Like people always look at that Fernando Tatis trade and blame Rick Hahn for it. I don't blame Rick Hahn for that trade. Fernando Tatis didn't play stateside when he traded him. And he wasn't the guy. And he and wasn't good. <laughs> yes. And we now we know the friend of the Tatis got a little help. He had to get rid of his acne slash ring. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> and so I don't blame, blame him because the results turned into bad. Like at the time, no one was saying, we trade away Fernando Tatis Jr. No one said that. Not one person. Everybody's like, we got James Shields type of thing. But I was like, we got rid of Eric Johnson. Thumbs up trade, Rick Hahn. Um, but I didn't, at the time of the trade, I was like, it hurts that Jake Berger is going somewhere else. But what are the, what are the White Sox doing with Jake Berger in the future? That's what I said. Nothing. Yeah. Like they're not doing anything with him. Like it's better to get somebody for him. And that's partly because of Rick's fault because of the roster construction of this team is terrible. But as I talked about sunk costs, like he knows that Jake Berger on this team in the future Yes, he might run into a couple home runs, but what is he? What does he do next year for the 2024 White Sox? Nothing. Sit on the bench, come in the game every once in a while, pops a home run, strikes out a lot. That doesn't that doesn't do anything for you. Jake Eater, yeah. he might be a top of the rotation pitcher. I'd rather take roll of dice on that guy than keep on with Jake Berger and just like, oh, okay. He's he's yeah. not playing because Johan's got to play because he's 24 million. Yeah, we knew this. The contract's been signed for a long time. So, yeah, I I will not, even in the future, if Jake Berger goes on to be an all-star and all this stuff that happens, I will not place blame on Rick Hahn because I thought at the time there was a good trade, and I still think it's a good trade. 
So you, you're you're telling me that you think uh, that roster construction won't allow for another DH on this team? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> oh no, they they will always take a guy that can't play any other position. That'll be perfect. They're like, oh man, you can't play any position except for first base. Mm, come on, our team. Uh, well, I, th- I think uh, Wander Franco will probably be looking for a job. So, yeah, him and Clev can uh, hang out in the you know the off season together. Yikes! Um, so Bob Nightingale threw a tweet out a few. Uh, what is it? A, a day now ago, I think, um, more or less saying that the. The front office jobs for the White Sox were being interviewed for and uh, and evaluated um, on a you know I you know just judging by results I guess and uh, you know proof of process I guess proof of concept of how they're supposed to be doing things. Uh, then uh, Bruce Levine says that. Jerry Reinsdorf said, well, this isn't anything that we wouldn't normally do in a year where we underperformed. So hearing that you thought yesterday, probably, that the that Rick Hahn was interviewing himself for his own job or whatever, however that <laughs> however that was going. And now hearing that now it's not anything out of the norm. We know that we suck, and that's why we're interviewing. But it doesn't necessarily mean that anything's going to happen. Is anything meaningful coming this off season from uh, movement in the front office? I would surely hope so, but I don't think so. I think these guys are going to my back. Uh, Jerry's committed to these people. He's at the—I don't know if he's at the end of his life, but he's up there in ages. And so I don't think he wants to start over with a new general manager, executive vice president of baseball ops. Maybe. They fire like they he allows Kenny Williams to fire or reassign Rick Hahn somewhere, but as I said, they're just going to rehire or put somebody up there that doesn't, you know, deserve the job. And Kenny Williams continues to do the job, or he takes over ultimately. And you can tell what the moves that Kenny does because then we bring in like former athletes and such. Somebody played some football, then he'll come in and do some jobs like uh, what's that uh, Mitchell and Joe Borchard, those type of guys. Um, but I don't think anything fundamentally changes with the White Sox this offseason, even if they do fire these people. Now, I do want some accountability, so if they do actually fire Rick Hahn, I'll be happy that they did it. Not happy that um, a person's losing their job, but happy that finally there's accountability for being one of the worst GMs in baseball. Like, he took this job, and I only think, like, two other general managers have had a longer tenure than him. And both of those general managers, Brian Cashman, and I forgot the other one, um, maybe John Mozeliak, have both won World Series, both of them, easily. And Rick Hahn has his job security, even though he's only won two playoff games in his tenure. And has, what, 11 seasons? I think nine of those are either at 500 or below. Like, there's no reason for him to still have his job. So I would be happy that he finally got what he deserved, but also, you know, the man has a job, has a family and such. I don't want him to lose his livelihood, but he deserves it. So I don't, ultimately I think nothing fundamentally changes about the organization that needs to happen. Cause we all see this organization as a bad organization and it rocks from the head down. I don't want, I don't want to be like the Sox fans that 
I don't think they root for Jerry's demise, but are rooting for him to die or anything like that. I want the man to live a whole, full, healthy life and do whatever he wants. But I don't want him to own my favorite baseball team anymore because we know it doesn't work. He's too stubborn to change what is obviously wrong. And so I know that I'm going to be cheering for a broken franchise until he sells the team. And so I'm just going to be content with that move on and know that nothing's going to change. If he surprises me somehow, I would love that. Please, Jerry, your later years, be like Mike Illich. Go all out. Spend all the money you can. <laughs> Can't take Change it with you. General manager. Exactly. Yeah, Michael's got enough money himself. He'll be running the Bulls when you're when you're gone. So you're good to go. Your family would be good to go. And so I would just want to have, you know, if I was in my later years, I would want to have a little, little last hurrah. If I can do it, I'm sure Mike Illich, even though they didn't win the World Series with the Detroit Tigers, they made noise. He probably went, yeah, went to his grave like that. Yeah, no regrets. I pushed, I pushed the pedal to the metal. It didn't work out, but you know what? Sometimes life doesn't work out like that. And I'm sure every Detroit Tiger fan is like, thank you, Mike Illich. We appreciate you. And his legacy in Detroit is as such. It's like Mike Illich did whatever it took to win championships here in Detroit, even though it didn't work out for the Tigers. Jerry's legacy when he leaves from the White Sox, it's going to be a bad one, no matter what, unless he wins the World Series again. And even then, people are still like, man, those, those years between 2005 and 2000, whatever year, were rough. That wouldn't be wrong. Um, yeah, you know, it's like uh, as far as the, the Tigers went, you know, they made noise. They had fun. They didn't ultimately mm-hmm. win it, but winning a World Series is hard. You know, Very hard. at least they put in the effort and uh, made conscious decisions to make the team better. You know, the thing that that bothers me the most about the White Sox is that, you know, they, they bumped up their payroll so much last year. But yet they don't want to spend the three million dollars a year on player development to hire more people. But they'll they'll raise the payroll, you know, signing washed up free agents to you know, $8 million, $10 million contracts and signing, you know, eight of them. $60 million bullpen. Yikes. You know, Do they still have one of the lightest and, you know, like an analytic department and their research and development department, one of the least uh, employed in the major leagues? Yeah. So, as far so as we know. The thing about that is, is that they have um, – a bunch of the guys in the system don't get counted towards that analytics department because they have a particular title. It's not that they don't necessarily do some of the things that somebody that else in a different system would have a different title. It's not that they don't Uh do those things. It's just that they do something else is their main job, but this is like their secondary thing. It's like Chris Johnson, Chris Johnson, who's now the, you know, the third hitting coach for the white Sox. Last year is the hitting coach for the Charlotte Knights, but ultimately his main job for the entire organization is he's the head of biometrics, you know, for for the hitting side. And nobody, you know, like the only reason I knew this is because I, uh, you know, I signed up my kid and myself for uh, Andy Barquette's uh, hitting school and and training and stuff. And uh, he did these these webinars where he had like uh, Devin DeYoung and Cam Seitzer and all the guys from the the White Sox system on 
his his streams and so i found out like all sorts of really interesting stuff and you know all sorts of cool things that these guys do but the thing is is that their titles don't match up with you know like uh you know say somebody with the rays however we know for a fact that the rays have you know like 25 people on staff doing that stuff and the white Sox definitely do not have that so yeah i would assume that they're probably still on the on the lower end of the spectrum but they might not be the lowest but i mean you know at this point who really knows because just like everything else with the white Sox, they do as much as they can to possibly to blur the lines of where you're looking you're looking well, to that figure leads out me to a question for you ian actually yeah uh, you know, having said all of that about, you know, these guys that are, are in different roles that don't necessarily give them the title of, you know, someone in an analytical, you know, job or being part of the analytical department, do, do you feel like not having a singular focus on one specific thing does something to take away from the analytic side of, of what the White Sox are doing? You know, do, I, do you I feel like. For for a guy like Chris Johnson, yeah, probably because you've got him in one spot. You had him in Charlotte all last year. Now, you know, like when you had guys that would go and talk to him in Charlotte, you know, when they got put in on rehab assignments or you know, or they'd uh, you know if they got sent down because they weren't performing real well, like uh, Gavin Sheets. Um, you know, when they go down there, now they don't have him to go talk to. I mean, granted, you know, Gavin Sheets has got him in Chicago and whatever, but I mean, you know, if if you don't have multiple people doing the doing this kind of work, you know, it makes a. I would assume it makes it a little bit more difficult. Now, I mean, that said, you know, the the guys that you know, I've I've talked about this many times on our stream. I feel like the the development side of the White Sox minor league org has gotten light years better in the last two years. But, you know, if there's not enough guys to spread out and to, to go to each place and, you know, put these guys in check or to check up on what they're doing, then, you know, it's like your checks and balances are kind of out of whack. You need to have enough people that can go and take care of all this stuff, and they just don't. So I guess that kind of answers that. I hope. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, so thank you so much for coming on, Herb. It's been awesome. Love thank you for on. having me. It has been awesome. I mean, we've, uh, we've, yeah, me on. we've wanted to have you on forever and for whatever we've reason. We've actually like, been talking about it for quite some time. Yeah. <laughs> we have. Yeah. Uh, I've had a couple of conflicts with my softball and, uh, you know, White Sox play on Mondays. But, you know, I don't care about the game today. Or any of these games going forward. <laughs> as long as we see development. I'm the opposite of Pedro. I don't care about wins. I care about development. You and me both. Um, yeah, you're not going to find an argument here. Uh, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter. Ecknerwall23. That is just Lawrence. My last name spelled backwards with 2-3 for Robin Ventura, my favorite player ever. Who, As I told with Tim Anderson, um, after the fight, that Rob Ventura had with Nolan Ryan. And then after his managerial uh, stint with the White Sox, people don't think about his career anymore. They think about him getting beat up by Nolan Ryan and him sucking as a manager of the White Sox. It's unfortunate. And I think Tim, Tim, exactly. He was an awesome baseball player. And Tim, gold, silver slugger, uh, won a batting title, was an all-star starter. 
will be thought about as the guy who got knocked out by Jose Ramirez. So, AcronWall23, usually on all the socials. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and also TikTok, which I barely do anything but post my dog. <laughs> Uh, yeah, my favorite guy uh, when we were in high school was uh, Black Jack McDowell. Now, now only everybody thinks of him as uh, you know a tinfoil hat wearing uh, crazy person. So uh, yeah. there's that. Uh, so uh, White Sox uh, at Daily White Sox on Twitter for us. Uh, I am at I Eskridge. That's uh, at Danny Miller WSD. You can find us at WhiteSoxDaily.substack.com, and you can uh, also find us on YouTube and Facebook. Just search White Sox Daily, and you'll find us. Uh, this will be available in podcast form uh, tomorrow morning, and also on YouTube. Uh, we thank you guys for coming in and watching, and for listening in podcast. And uh, you guys have a great evening. My name is Ian Eskridge for Herb Lawrence and Danny Miller. Thank you for listening. Have a great night.